And now we go on to Revelation chapter 3. <laughs> See, it's good you guys keep me on track, man. I'll just zing off in any direction sometimes. Uh, as we continue chapter 3, uh, what I was starting to say is that it is kind of funny because, you know, kind of so much build up to getting to the book of Revelation and that you kind of want to jump right into the prophetic things of Revelation. Uh, but if you remember, John, when he received uh, the, the instructions from Jesus, we actually also get the breakdown of the book of Revelation. That John's told to write down the things that he has seen, that's chapter 1, the things which are, which are chapters 2 and 3, and the th- things that must, must take place after this, which is chapters 4 through the rest of the book. Um, so we're, right now we're in the midst of the things which are in the the letters to the seven churches. And this isn't just the things that were in John's day. It's the things that are still in our day. That these seven churches represent the entire church throughout all of history. It is every church that's ever existed or ever will exist fits into one of these seven categories. And more than that, and I know I hit this every week, but it's important because this is where our personal application is going to come from, is that it is written to every Christian that has made up all of those churches, which means it applies to us individually, it applies to our family, it applies to our marriages, it applies to our ministry with wherever God has set us, right, within the workplace or community, whatever that might be that we personally fall into these, one of these seven categories, at least one, if not more than one, right? And so as we look at the instruction, we see the things that they're struggling with, and all of them start so subtly. We're kind of seeing them at the end where the Lord is saying, look, you need to change this right now before it goes any further. But we need to understand that they all start so subtly, so quietly, and they take root almost completely unobserved by anyone. And because of that, there are the things that they struggled with then are the same things that we struggle with now. And the good news is the answer that the Lord brings to each one of these groups, each one of these churches, applies to our lives individually. It's because it's the same things we struggle with, it's the same answers we still need today. And over and over again, what we're seeing is that the mistakes they've made are the way they've seen Jesus incorrectly. And what he's giving them as the answer is, this is who I really am, and this is what you need to remember about that, right? That Jesus is the answer every time. So today we look at the church of Sardis, and this is actually one to me, it's one every time I study it, I get more out of it. I mean, I love the seven churches. Like I said, I've kind of been obsessed with the seven churches for years now, and and studying them and reading about them, but the church of Sardis to me, I just find fascinating. Um... And so I actually had to cut out a lot of stuff because I just found myself just way too many uh, notes and things to share. So anyhow, I'm going to try, like usual, not to sidetrack too much and stay focused. So we're going to pray, and then we will get in to chapter 3. Lord Jesus, more than anything else, we want to hear from you today. And we pray that through your word, by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would speak to each one of us individually, that you'd speak to us as a church. Lord, we want to have ears to hear and a heart to receive all that you have today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 1, says to the angel of the church in Sardis, write these things, says he who has the seven spirits of God 
and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have found, not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you received and heard, and hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. This is a stern warning. While some of them, you could, you know, the Lord starts off with like, hey, here's all the things you're doing right. There isn't anything that's mentioned here of what they're doing right. That what they're doing has gone completely off track. And it's, we'll get into it as we go, but it's, it's not so much in the things that we think. The city of Sardis was interesting. Uh, like all of the cities, uh, there had been a time for Sardis when it was powerful, when it was influential, uh, but that time has passed when this letter arrived. The, the city of Sardis was in the decline. And, and it was famous, but it was famous for a lot of bad reasons. Uh, it was famous for being a city that was all about partying and immorality and, and luxury and laziness. That's what Sardis was famous for. In fact, it was an insult when somebody had, had gone a little bit far, maybe they partied a little bit too much, that someone would go, oh, you, you must be from Sardis, right? And so that's one of the ways that Sardis was famous. But among the seven churches, and really among the, the cities of that region, it was not thought of highly in any way. Uh, it was famous, more infamous maybe, um, for, for wrong reasons. And it was an interesting city, uh, kind of how it was located. It was on a little bit of a hill, and it was on the edge of a canyon, which uh, made it, the city itself was actually surrounded by steep cliffs on three sides. Uh, it was seen as a fortress city in the past because there was only one way in and one way out. Very easily defended. But interestingly enough, it had been conquered over and over and over again. And almost the exact same scenarios are very close to the same. We'll look at one of the, the famous ones as we get to the end today. But over and over again, the, the main things that caused it to be seized were the arrogance of the people and the laziness to watch for an enemy. Also, one of the things that had caused them to be famous. And Jesus really kind of points to that as a couple of times as he addresses them here in chapter 3. He warns them, keep watch. Because the city had been famous for not keeping watch. And the enemies had just taken it with very little effort on their part. They didn't keep watch, concentrating on their own comfort and all of these things. And so really it's a short description, just six verses dedicated uh, to the church and only three of those that really describe the church itself. Um, and it's described as the dead church. It's probably the, the heading over this section in your scripture uh, or in your Bibles. But I think we get the wrong idea of that. I think nowadays when we talk about a church that's dead, we picture, you know, again, the church that maybe had a heyday way back 
and has been in decline, is kind of falling apart, and now there's just a handful of people, maybe elderly or maybe, you know, just either way, it's just a small congregation and they still sing the same songs every Sunday and they still talk about the same stuff every Sunday. And, and we look at that church and go, that's a dead church. Not a lot going on there. But that's the wrong idea. Because this church, as far as we know, is fairly large and very, very active. They had lots of stuff going on. And so the idea of a it being a dead church is not the idea of inactivity or, or, you know, kind of that slowing down to almost a dead stop. These people had tons. And the Lord says, I know your works, that you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. Like I said, a lot going on there. Other churches, when Jesus said, I know your works, it was in a positive sense. In other words, he says, you know, I see what you're doing. I see what you're attempting to do. And it was really a, 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 a credit to them to say, you're trying, you're working. This one, however, is negative. Because the works that he's speaking of um, are, are, are not leading to anything important at all. There for Sardis, um, as a city... They still, though they were known for laziness, they had a lot going on. They were busy. They were very focused, again, on parties and on comfort and on luxury. There was a lot going on in those things. But none of those things matter. And unfortunately, that same attitude had made its way into the church. The church had a lot going on. Um, and as Jesus, he actually speaks about their works twice. In verses 1 and 2. In verse 1 he says, I know your works, you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. And to me that is a terrifying description. He's not saying you don't have any works. The works that you have, again, there's busyness, there's activity. But not only does he describe the problem, that there's lots of activity without life, but he describes their motive for their works. And this is real subtle, and it'd be easy to miss it, but it's important because I think it's very common in our lives and in so many churches today that the reason for their works, the motive behind doing all their works was for a name that they were alive. That what they did was to appear to have life. They weren't really concerned with life itself. They wanted to be the biggest and the brightest and the most entertaining. They wanted a name among their community and among the other churches that they were alive. But that was what they were really interested in. Like I said, very subtle. And we can fall for this same lie that activity equals life. And it does not. You can have tons of busyness. You can have tons of things pulling you in every direction. And we know from our own personal experience, we can be pulled in every direction, going all over the place, running the kids to this practice and that practice, and having this meeting and that meeting, and our life feels empty. Right? This is that idea even more so. 
that they not only had bought into this lie, but then they had begun to sell it to other people because they wanted that name and they wanted people to see them. You know, if you went to this church or you went to Sardis itself as a city and you're like, hey, man, what's, what's up with all those Christians? What's going on in that church? They'd be like, there's stuff going on there all the time. Lights are always on. Activities always happening. These guys are all over the place. If you visited the church, it would be busy, busy, busy. There's, there's groups for everybody. We got, we got elderly groups. We got groups for kids. We got groups for teens. We got recovery groups. We got counseling groups. We got groups all over the place. The problem is, is that with all of those groups, what you would not find is the solid teaching of the word and the revealing of Jesus' character. And it has to be both, right? We've already seen that with other churches. Ephesus had a great teaching of the word, but they had forgotten about love. And so it, it needs to be both of those. This church is focused very much on comfort and very much on acceptance. But they had drawn back from the teaching of the word and revealing the character of Jesus. Again, like the other churches, we've seen this before. They start backing up and they start giving messages or whatever they're doing that it's not about the conviction of sin and the repentance from it. It's about feel good. It's about therapy. It's about venting and listening and accepting and busy, busy, busy. But it is not life. I know your works. You have a name that you are alive but you are dead. And I think, again, it's important we understand that in all their busyness, none of it counted for eternity. That's really the idea of that there's no life. That the things that they were doing, the groups that they were having, all the things that were going on in that church and, and out of that church and all the satellite campuses and everything else they were doing, none of it was pointing people to Jesus and eternity. And I, I've seen how subtly this takes place. I've seen how subtly it is like, hey, we just want to accept people where they are. That's a right idea. We want to meet people where they're at. We want them to have the comfort. Again, right idea. But if we're not doing that to then bring people to Jesus, then what we do is dead. It ceases to have life. It ceases to be for meaning. It only has a temporary worldly value and it doesn't have much of that. Now while there is a lot in this church that has died or is dead, the Lord brings out the fact that not everything is dead. There are a few things on life support. There's a few things with the spark of life still there. And he tells him in verse 2, be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. He says that he's found their works, or he's not found their works perfect before God. Um, and really, we could read that and misunderstand what's being said, because whose works are perfect before God? I mean, if you met a guy that said that, you're like, mm, I can tell that's not true, right? Oh, everything I do, all my works are perfect before God. Um, 
Lack of humility, there's one, you know, I mean, so what's being said here? The idea is, is that what they're doing, the, the word for perfect means brought to completion or brought to maturity, right? It doesn't mean flawless. It means brought to a maturity or brought to completion. And again, it's pointing to that the works they're doing are not bringing people to salvation. That what they're doing, it has a point, but it's missing the main point. They're not bringing people to Jesus. And therefore, their works are dead. They have a name that they're alive, but they're not. I think groups like this can make church members. They can make religious people. They can raise people up in churchianity. But they won't save them. They can make social groups and lots of things. But if they're not bringing people to Jesus Christ, the work is dead. Now, this is also something I think is important. With this church, their sin is not like some wicked sin. They're not in sexual immorality. They're not in idol worship. They're not you know, committing murder or human sacrifice or any of that. It isn't wicked sin. It's distraction that leads to death. They're so distracted with the feel-good message and with the acceptance of all that they have departed from the Word of God and the importance of bringing people to Jesus Christ. And they become so distracted, it's leading to death, meaning eternal death. But now, even within this, I mean, Jesus has been pretty, pretty harsh, pretty, like I said, this is a, a, a terrifying description. There's still a promise that he's giving to them. Because while he's describing, look, the works that you've done have accomplished nothing. You've got a name, you're alive, but you're dead. When he speaks of those things that remain, that are about to die, it's this hope of not everything's lost. And though you've invested so much and returned zero, I still have so much for you. It's a great promise. Again, it's, it's subtle, but it's theirs. The Lord is, is just letting them know, man, there's so much more. And the answer is actually quite simple. It's, it's simple to understand, but I think it's hard to actually enact, especially for a whole church body. Because really the answer is make what you do about Jesus again. Right? So what, what are you doing? If, if you're feeding the homeless or if you're doing outreach, again, we can do all those things just simply for a name that we're alive. Switch it to doing it for Jesus all over again. To bring people to Jesus. And you're on the right track. Now it has eternal worth and eternal value again. But that doesn't mean preaching at people constantly. Again, I think that's the mistake where we can just go, okay, well, I'm going to do all this hard work I've been doing, all this busyness I've had in my life. I'm just going to simply change it about Jesus, which means I'm in everybody's face everywhere I go, right? No, that's not it at all. I think the, the life of Jesus, the way he dealt with people is the best example, and there's many others. But how we're supposed to deliver the good news is that first we get connected with people. And then we care about them personally. But the point of that is, is that in order to bring them to Jesus or encourage them in Jesus. 
If you don't have that last part, you're right back in the church of Sardis, right? So as a church, that's the goal of all the ministries here, Sunday school, outreach, whatever we do, is that it's giving us the opportunity to personally connect with people and get to know them and care about their lives and who they are and what they're about, that we might bring them to Jesus. And if they already know the Lord, that then to raise them up, to build them up and encourage them in Jesus, right? And that's, that's it. Again, for a church that's gone so far off track, it's going to require a lot. And the Lord's going to simplify it for them, but it's, it is going to require a lot of change and repentance on their part. And as he brings this out, again, it would be easy to think, okay, the Lord's just telling them to work harder. Just, just change how hard you're working in the area that's producing nothing, and now work that hard for Jesus. But it's a lot more than that. In fact, it's not really saying work harder at all. When, and this is why the description of who Jesus is to the church of Sardis, this is where it comes in important, right? Because he describes himself as the one who has the seven spirits. This is back in verse 1. He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Um, we talked about the seven spirits in chapter 1. The seven spirits are not seven different holy spirits. They're not seven angels. There's not seven ministering spirits. It's actually a reference back to one of the titles of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. And it appears a couple times. Uh, probably the best example is Isaiah chapter 11. And the idea there and what's brought out in Isaiah chapter 11 is the seven ministries of the Holy Spirit. Okay? It's an odd way of saying it, but that's, that's what it's talking about. But also we've talked about the importance of the number seven, right? That seven is the number of completion or fullness, right? Seven days in a week, seven churches, seven stars. All of these things have the idea of a completeness to them. And so what the Lord is saying is, I'm the one that has the fullness of the Holy Spirit to give. See, this church needs to know that. Because in all of their busyness and all of their effort and all of their works, it's all been in their own strength. And so the Lord isn't just saying, hey, just change your focus, make it about Jesus. He's saying, look, when you change your focus, make it about Jesus, I have the fullness of the Holy Spirit to empower you. And he wants us to have the fullness of the Holy Spirit. He's not holding back, going, well, let's see if you earn it. Let's see if you uh, are worthy, right? He says, no, I've got it right here. When he talks about the seven stars, he's talking about the seven leaders, or the seven, the word angel just means messenger, but it's the seven stars, uh, or leaders, pastors of the church. And again, he's reminding them, I'm the one that has them all in the palm of my hand. I know what's going on with your church leadership. I know what's going on with you personally. That he's the one in control, and he's the one that has it all handled. Now, he gives them a couple uh, different things to bring them back to this place of resting in him and being empowered by the fullness of the Holy Spirit. But I think there's three main things that, that really stand out in verses 2 and 3. First of all, he says, be watchful. And then he says, strengthen the things which remain. And then the third is, remember how you received and heard. So the first, be watchful. Uh, it actually has a couple meanings to it. So he's pointing to, I think, primarily 
that we would be watchful of what Jesus is doing. What is Jesus about right now? What does he want to do in my life and in this church? And I think with that, or maybe on, along with that, we are being watchful for his return. And that seems like totally separate things, right? But understand that when we're focused on the Lord's return being soon, it changes the way I live right now. And it causes me to seek the Lord going, Lord, what do you want to do right now? I mean, you could come back today. So what do you want to do today? I want to be watchful for what the Lord is doing, right? Whether that's his return, whether it's causing me to repent or humble myself or ask forgiveness or whatever it might be, the work that he wants to do in me, that I would be watchful. But the other side of being watchful, and I want to be careful about how I say this because I've seen people take this and just run in, in wrong directions with it. But we're also to be watchful to some degree of what our enemy is doing. Not paranoid. Not giving the devil more credit than he deserves. Right? And I think the order to this is important. First, we're concerned with Jesus. What he's doing, his return, what he's calling me personally to do. But we are also to not be ignorant of the enemy's devices. Right? Again, don't give him more credit than he deserves. Don't, don't point to every possible wrong thing and that's an enemy's attack. Don't give him that much credit. But we are to be aware that we have a very real enemy who wants to see our downfall. And be aware, you know. Next he says, strengthen the things which remain. Now, this is very personal and specific to the church of Sardis. They knew what those things were, right? Um, and so we, we don't know the details of what the Lord was pointing to, but we can know what they, what they were about. Because whatever was still alive, still remaining, still could be strengthened, were the things that were about Jesus himself and about his word. So whatever those were, and maybe they looked at it and went, you know what, when it comes down to how we're ministering to children, that is still about Jesus. So we're going to strengthen that which remains, right? And then we want that to expand. Again, it doesn't really matter what, what it was for Sardis specifically, but we can be sure that it had to do with the character of who Jesus is and his word. Because those things will always remain. Always. Even in the worst, most dead church, you can come in with the word of God and it is alive in that dead place. Right? You can come in with the the character of Jesus and what he's about and Jesus is alive in that dead place. And for us, man, that is what we are to be about. That we are to strengthen the word of God in our own lives. And not out of duty, and I I think this is what I I know I've said many times, I've heard other people say many times, like, man, I know I should read my Bible more. And there's this like weight of guilt over them about how they don't read their Bible enough and how they need to study the Bible more. And, oh, I just know I'm I'm so wrong and I'm so bad and I just don't feel motivated to to read the Word. Understand that is not what, what the Lord is saying. But as we take in the Word of God, we're getting to know Jesus better. We're getting to know his character better, right? And we're strengthening ourselves in his word, in his character, 
for this purpose to share with others. Right? It isn't just about us building ourselves up and our duty, our responsibility, read the word more so we know the word more. It's to know Jesus more so we can share Jesus more. Right? That the works we're doing have life when we are doing them for Him. And the last, it says, remember how you received and heard. And I love this because, again, we overcomplicate things. It is something in our fallen nature that loves to overcomplicate as much as we possibly can because it makes us feel smart. Right? If I can super overcomplicate the simplest thing, how to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, and then I can hold that over you because you've been doing it wrong all these years. Let me show you how complicated it actually is. And you're like, oh, crud. Ha, all this time. I thought I knew. You know? We do that with everything that we can, especially the Word of God. And so the Lord is telling them, remember how you received and heard. How did you get saved? How did you come to Jesus? It wasn't through busyness. It wasn't through programs. It wasn't through hype and glitter and glam and all the other things that people promote. It was through one person giving you the honest gospel of Jesus Christ. It might have been your parents. It might have been a friend. It might have been somebody you heard on the radio. But it was one person going, Jesus loves you. We are sinners in need of grace. We need a Savior, and Jesus is that Savior. And we went, they're right. It was done in beauty and simplicity and clarity. And the Lord's saying, now just continue in that. Don't overcomplicate it. Don't try and make it all this busyness and programs and things stacked upon things upon things until you forget all about Jesus in the, in the stack. Keep it simple. Let it be beautiful. Let it be clear and honest. And continue in that. Don't overcomplicate it. All right. Verse 4. It says, You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments. And they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. And I will not blot his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Like I said, the city itself of Sardis was busy with luxury and parties and, and comfort and all of the things that went along with it. And the, the church had started going that same way. But not everyone had. What's interesting is that with the other churches we've looked at so far, it's more like a few people had started to bring in a problem. And the majority of the church was doing okay. I mean, maybe they were kind of turning their ear toward it. Maybe they were interested or curious. But it was a few causing the problem. This is the reverse. The majority of the church has gone this way. And Jesus says, there's a few. <laughs> there's just a few, even in Sardis, that have not gone that way. That have not gone the wrong direction. And to those, though they're... they're only a few, they've stood their ground, the Lord is saying, their reward will be eternal. They will walk with me in white. The white garment 
uh, in that culture was one of victory and, and one of purity, right? The, the reason for your victory was purity. Was kind of, they went along with each other. And so the Lord is saying, though they're the minority now, the ultimate victory will be the, theirs. And also all of those who will overcome this thing, that will repent of it, they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. And the idea, again, we kind of get it mixed up, but the idea is that Jesus is the one that clothes us in his righteousness, and Jesus is the one that makes us worthy. Nothing they did made them worthy. No victory they won made them pure. Jesus makes us worthy. Jesus clothes us in his righteousness. Now, verse 5, a little bit of a sidetrack, but I think it's an important one. It says in verse 5, I will not blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. People get hung up on that, and they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. He blots people's names out of the book of life? I mean, can you be in the book of life one day and blot it out the next? And it's a terrifying thought. Again, context is everything. Because Jesus has already dealt with the harshness of this church. He's already said, this is what you're doing wrong. If you don't repent, I'm going to come upon you as a thief. You won't know the hour that I come upon you. And now he's moved on to the encouragement. This is not a threat. This is the encouragement he's giving to his people. Going, look, if your name is in my book, it will never be blotted out. Ever. In fact, I will confess your name before my Father and his angels. So if you try, and and people do, flip this into some sort of threat, some sort of warning, it's not. This is meant 100% to be encouragement to the people to say, look, your name is in his book, and it will never be blotted out from there. Now, he warns, or he encourages all, all of the churches to hear, to him who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches again, because all of these things apply to each church. This one specifically uh, applies to Sardis, but it's going to apply to people in every church. And so all the churches would be reading this as well and applying it to themselves. Um, So that's what this church looks like. And again, I think we've all seen this church. We've all been to this church where there's a lot going on, very busy, lots of activity. But man, we're not really seeing anybody get saved. We're not seeing people brought to the Lord. Things are not being done with a sense of eternity hanging in the balance. But how does it look when it comes to a family or a marriage or a church? Um, I think probably the best picture to me is actually the one of the stories of the fall of Sardis. And like I said, they've been conquered multiple times. They're all similar in the way that they were conquered, but there's one that's probably the best recorded and uh, documented of how it all went down. And I think this, is, to me, this is where I see the application of how it applies to us individually and specifically how I think it applies to marriage. Um, and I guess family as well. So in 500 BC, King Cyrus decided that he was going to take the city of Sardis. And, and it was known to be a fortress. That Again, it was on a hill, sharp cliffs on three sides. There was only one main gate to get through, and it was designed as a bottleneck. So even a huge army that was trying to get through that main gate, had they been open, 
would have been able to be held off by just a handful of guards. That they could sit on the wall and just pick people off and remain safe themselves. And so Cyrus brings his army and they set up camp just outside the main gate. And for a couple days they hurl insults. I always kind of picture the Monty Python thing as, as they're yelling, you know. Because the people of Sardis didn't care a bit. They didn't give Cyrus any concern for his army. They're just like, do whatever you're going to do, man. You can't get in here. And so Cyrus' army was baffled. They knew that they could not attack the city head on through the gate. But then one day, one of his soldiers observed a guard that was down on a lower wall and accidentally drops his helmet. The helmet rolls off the wall and down into the canyon below. And so the guard just watches. What's this guy going to do? How's he going to get his helmet back? And so the guard disappears and, and then reappears through a secret door at the bottom of the, the wall, makes his way down a secret trail, gets his helmet, and goes back up. That night, a small group of Cyrus men go through that secret door, and their plan was to fight their way to the main gate and open it up and let the entire army in. What was surprising is that when they'd gone through the secret doorway, there were no guards. There were no guards anywhere in the city, including the main gate. Everyone had gone to bed. No one was keeping watch. So secure, so overconfident in their security, not one guard in the entire city. And so they opened the gate and they raided the city. So when it comes to the warning to the church, the warning to the families and us as individuals, and again, like I said, as marriage for marriages. The things that they did wrong is they were overconfident in their security. They did not keep watch, and they were very busy about everything that wasn't important. In marriage and in family, we can get so busy. We can get pulled in every direction. And we can start to see that busyness as being life. And even as being love. Candy and I over the years have done tons of marriage counseling with people. And in almost every case, one if not both of the people in that marriage counseling session will say, why don't they just look at all that I do for them? Look at all I'm doing. That should prove that I love them. No, it doesn't. That's busyness. That's work. That's going in every direction but the one that's important. And the overconfidence, it's not an overconfidence in the Lord. It's an overconfidence in their own security. The other thing I've heard, not, not often, but from time to time, and it's never just said this clearly, but it's, it's kind of mixed up in, in other words, is, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, we have a tough time in our marriage, but you know what? We're fine. They're not going anywhere. And then they do. This overconfidence of, we're fine. We're fine. Sure, we fight. Sure, we argue, but they're not going anywhere. Again, it's not an overconfidence in the Lord. It's an overconfidence in themselves. And again, this applies to marriages. It applies to families. It applies to us individually. Man, how we have got to be careful that what we're looking to are the things of the Lord, to Jesus personally, right? That we are those who are keeping watch. 
We're being watchful of what the Lord's calling us to do individually. God, am I getting out of line? Am I getting off track? Am I getting too busy in things that don't matter? Things that you haven't called me to do that are taking way too much of my time. So we're, we're watching for what the Lord would do in our own lives. Again, looking for His return, believing that, hey, my time's short. I can't mess around with this stuff. There is a time limit. The Lord could return today. But also that we are keeping watch knowing that we do have a very real enemy that literally is outside the gate looking for the secret way in and is only interested in our destruction. Again, not to be paranoid, but neither are we to be ignorant. We're to be those that are strengthening that which remains. Strengthening in the Word of God. See, if you don't have enough time for your devotion, that's not your spouse's fault. That's not your family's fault. It's not your job's fault. It's up to us individually to strengthen that which remains, to grow and strengthen in the Lord, again, that we might receive and understand as much as we can the fullness of the Holy Spirit in order to give out Jesus to everyone else, including our spouse, including our family. And we are to remember how we received, man, in simplicity and beauty. All this is not to make things harder or more complicated. It's to make it easy. It's to make it simple. It's to come back to the how we received at the beginning. Man, it's how we receive now. Just let Jesus do what he wants to do. Receive that fullness of the Holy Spirit in order to empower us to do more. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we are so thankful that you desire to do a great work in each and every one of us individually. And Lord, in no way do we want to miss out on that work. We know that it might be difficult. We we know that there are things that we got to change. But Lord, teach us to follow you and fall more in love with you, that we might share your love with the people around us. And we just, uh, again, pray that you have your way in us. In Jesus' name, amen.